All right, so let's turn to the book of Ephesians. This morning, we're going to be in chapter 6, as Leonard read. We coordinated, by the way, the pronunciation of Tychicus. You can hear it like lots of different ways, but we're going to roll with that this morning. Tychicus, we'll learn a little bit about him. Um, but this is Paul's final greetings. And, and, you know, one of the things that's odd about this list is, is honestly what's not there. Because Paul had been in Ephesus for three years, we know from the scriptures. And so you would expect a long list of people that he would be greeting in this letter. You would expect to see that. And at the same time, maybe he knew too many people and he didn't want to leave anybody out. Or it could be like what we talked about in the introduction, that this was a letter designed to go to Ephesus, but then be passed around in a circular manner to the other churches in Asia Minor, much like the book of Revelation was designed to do that. So it could have been that too. I think that's probably more likely. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at the the final four verses, and then we're going to do a 30,000-foot overview of the entire book of Ephesians. We're going to zip through it as as quick as we can. It's going to be hard for me not to make a lot of extra comments, but I am going to try to behave and stay on script this morning with the 30,000-foot overview because we want to get through it quickly and see how this all fits together. But before we do that, let's jump into verses 21 and 22. Paul writes, but that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. And so what we learn from this is that Tychicus was apparently the, the letter bearer. He was the one that took the letter from Paul and carried it with him to the city of Ephesus. Now, who, who was he? Well, he's, he's one of those characters in the Bible we actually get some information about outside of this verse. And so we learn a little bit about Tychicus. We learn in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, that he was from Asia. So he's from this area uh, of Ephesus. He's from that general region of the world. It's also the same region of the world where all the churches in Revelation 2, or th- 2 and 3 are mentioned. It's that same area. Acts 20, verse 4, Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. All these, all these moms that are pregnant right now, keep your eyes out for good biblical names in this verse. This would be, uh, I've never met a Sopater before, so they would definitely be unique in their class or Aristarchus. Segundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Antichicus and Trophimus of Asia. One of the things we learn about him here, and the other thing we learn about him in Colossians 4-7, is he's described the following ways. In fact, if the Apostle Paul knew you and described you in this way, I'd be like, man, I feel pretty good about myself. I feel like I'm actually doing things the right way. But Paul describes him as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Wouldn't that be neat if the Apostle Paul felt that way about you, if you got to work with Paul and that's how he described you to others? Just kind of be a neat thought. So he was obviously one of the guys that Paul trusted in the ministry, one of the guys that Paul uh, relied upon to do things that were, he he may not have given to other people. We're going to see that uh, as a result of that, he sent Tychicus many places to assist him in the ministry. We learned this from extra um, uh, outside of the book of Ephesus, but he was a trustworthy, like-minded fellow servant of the Lord. And so he was sent these following places. You can, you can see from, um, from here in Ephesians, he was sent to Asia Minor from Rome. That means that Tychicus was with Paul in Rome while he wrote this epistle. So he was with Paul while Paul was under house arrest. 
waiting for this letter to be written to take it back to Ephesus. And it wasn't a short trip. You know, it wasn't like going from here to Fayetteville. I mean, it was, it was a long journey. In fact, we read about Paul's journey on ship. He almost lost his life. So it was even a potentially perilous journey um, to get to Ephesus. But he delivered um, the, the Ephesian, the, the book of the Ephesians to the Ephesian church. We also know that he delivered the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon to the Colossian church, which is also in that Asia Minor area. And so this was probably done on the same trip. We also know that his tra- he had a traveling partner. And um, let's, let's go to Colossians to see his traveling partner. Also another good baby name if you're looking for one that would be unique. Colossians 4 verse 7, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts with Onesimus a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all the things which are happening here. And so we learned that Onesimus, which was Philemon's runaway slave. Remember that story? What a beautiful story. And Philemon, this this slave runs away from his master, who's Philemon. He uh, apparently from the text, he steals from him on his way out the door. And he's just trying to run away, get away from from his master. He ends up in Rome. Somehow he ends up in the house that Paul's in. Somehow he ends up here in the gospel that Paul preached. And somehow he ends up trusting in Christ and becoming a a dear believer in the Lord. And so Paul is now sending Tychicus and Onesimus back to drop him back off in Colossae with Philemon. And that's what the whole book of Philemon's about. But this is Tychicus's traveling partner. It's Onesimus. We saw that Tychicus is... Potentially. Now, this is a maybe because we, Paul says he's either going to send Tychicus or somebody else to Crete, the island of Crete, from Corinth. And let's go to Titus and look at that. Titus 3, verse 12. Titus 3, verse 12. Paul writes, When I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. And so what did Paul want? He wanted Titus to do the ministry that he had entrusted him to do. He wanted to send a replacement for Titus so that Titus could come winter with him in Nicopolis. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go into the detail on Crete, but Crete, the the people of Crete were right up there with the people of Corinth. That was a challenging assignment. And so obviously he trusted Tychicus enough to consider him for this potential role. In fact, by the way, if Tychicus did go to Crete, If Tychicus was the one who relieved Titus of his ministry there, do you know that Tychicus is responsible for delivering four New Testament epistles? Ephesians, Philemon, Colossians, and the book of Titus. So pretty neat guy, pretty pretty faithful guy, trustworthy guy, um, according to the Apostle Paul. We also see that he was sent to Ephesus from Rome. Again, it was he was with Paul during his second Roman imprisonment. This is where Paul lost his life. We believe that he was beheaded um, there during his second imprisonment. But he was actually sent by Paul from Rome to Ephesus. Why? Well, let's go to 2 Timothy 4, which if you had your finger in Titus, you did well. Just flip one to the left. 2 Timothy 4.12 says this, and, and Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchment. So why did Paul send Tychicus to Ephesus? To relieve Timothy, so that Timothy could come see him 
in prison. So that was where Timothy was. And so anyways, all of this just seems to suggest that Tychicus is what? He's a reputable brother. Paul trusted him and trusted him with a lot of ministry. And we see that he's got a role. In fact, he's got a, a threefold role as he goes to this church in Ephesus. The very first thing he needs to do is deliver the letter. Check. Did, did he deliver it? We, we got it in our hands today. Tychicus made it there. He delivered the letter just like he was supposed to do. In fact, Tychicus may have been there when they opened the letter and read it to the entire congregation for the first time. Might've been a guy that was there the very first time Ephesians, this book that we now have in our Bibles, was read to the intended audience. And so he delivered the letter to the Ephesians. The other thing he was to do was to update them on how Paul was doing. He, he wanted to give them uh, an update. You know, you know imagine if, if your hero, somebody that you looked up to, you heard they're in prison in a faraway land. Wouldn't you be concerned? Wouldn't you want to hear updates? Wouldn't you want to see if they're, he's being treated well. And so this is what Paul says. The, the Ephesian believers were probably concerned about Paul. You know, information didn't travel as fast. It wasn't as, as simple as sending a text or sending an email. It was either a personal um, letter, which then was, had to be carried by somebody a far distance. So, so information wasn't as readily available. And he wanted to know exactly what was going on, what was happening under house arrest. It may have been something similar to what Luke wrote in Acts 28. This may have been a message that Tychicus carried, that Paul dwelt two years in his own rented house, that he received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So he may have wanted them to know. Maybe they didn't know he was under house arrest. Maybe they assumed he was in the Mamertine prison, which is where he ends up in his second imprisonment, which was just this hole in the ground and just a dungeon. But no, okay, he's under house arrest. Okay, well, that's, that's better than Mamertine prison. And not only that, but he's got this freedom to receive guests. That's really great because he's still doing ministry. And then not only that, but he probably wanted him to know that he was having an effective ministry. This is what Paul wrote to the book, uh, to the church at Philippi, which was written during the same time. Notice what he writes. He's writing to the church in Philippi and he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so what did he want them to know? Don't, it's okay. I know I'm in jail, but God's actually doing miraculous things during imprisonment. And, and, you know, by the time Paul gets to Rome, he'd already been in jail for two years in Caesarea. And then he, he appealed to Caesar there. And then he went on a, on a boat voyage where he almost lost his life due to a shipwreck, and then finally he makes it to Rome, and then he's in prison there for two years. So the Ephesian believers haven't seen him probably for close to four years by this time. And so they're, they're concerned about him. But he said, don't worry. God is doing great and amazing and wonderful things even through my imprisonment. In fact, what it's doing is it's drawing people out who are otherwise quiet and maybe not aggressive in their, in their witness, and now they're preaching the gospel with passion. And And I don't know how that does that, but that's always how, you ever notice that's how the church works? That in areas where the church is persecuted, it explodes. (laughs) It should be, it seems like it should be the opposite. You persecute somebody, you start throwing people in jail and everyone's like, I'm not saying anything. I'm gonna stay under the radar. But it doesn't work that way. It's just incredible. 
And then it's the countries and the nations where we get fat, lazy, and happy, and there's no pressure. There's no external persecution, and we just get fat, lazy, happy with the Word of God. We're like, oh, man, you know, it's lunchtime. Can he stop speaking? And then you've got people in Africa that will walk four hours to sit for eight hours of teaching and then walk four hours home. And you think, what's different between them and us? Well, oftentimes those are believers that live in a Muslim-dominated country, and that's the only place they can get the living water. (laughs) So they say, you know what? It's worth it. I'm going to get up there. I'm going to be engaged. I'm going to be involved. And so he is updating them. Don't worry. This imprisonment is not doing what they set out to do. God is actually using it for his glory. And that was what he was going to update them and then to provide comfort to the Ephesian believers. And, um, and not only that, but comfort that Paul, I think, had a small indication that he might be getting released soon. We actually picked that up Uh, In Philippians and also in Philemon 22, Paul writes to Philemon, but meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers, I should be granted to you. And I think he was expecting to be released soon when these letters were cut loose. Part of of the reason for that, um, we don't know exactly, but part of the reason they speculate is that his accusers from Jerusalem just didn't make the trip up for that court case. And so when they didn't appear, he was able to be released. And so we don't know that for sure, but obviously that was some, some good news would have been of comfort to the Ephesian believers if he felt like he was going to be released soon. And so that brings us to really the last two verses of Ephesians, uh, verses 23 through 24. Peace to the brethren, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And so we see he moves to this final benediction, really including three things, peace, um, love with faith, and grace. That's an interesting phrase, by the way, love with faith. The only time it, that phrase is put together in the Bible like this. And so it's, it's unique. We'll look at it as we get there. But again, this three-part closing benediction, first, peace. You know, peace by definition is just the opposite of war, the opposite of dissension, the absence of strife. You know, the good news for the believer in Jesus Christ is the moment we trust in the finished work of Christ, we have peace with God. And that is a, a peace that never goes away. That's a, a positional peace, if you will, because God has removed the, the enmity between us. He's removed the penalty, so that penalty is never back on the table. And so that's why Romans 5.1 says, the moment we believe, we're declared righteous and we have peace with God, never to change. But one thing that does fluctuate in the believer's life, one thing that does fluctuate for someone who has been born into the family never to leave the family, is the peace of God. And that oftentimes fluctuates with experiences and circumstances. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. He wants them to have the peace of God. You know, they lived in a dangerous world. You know, we, we looked early on in the book in, in, in Acts 19, where, where Paul actually faced a, a severe riot in the city of Ephesus because they were blaming him for the loss of sales in the area of the polytheistic goddess Diana. And so there was a violent um, aspect, a violent nature among the Gentiles in Asia that these Ephesian believers were facing on a daily basis. And so he is, he is praying for peace for them, the peace of God, regardless of the circumstances. And this is, uh, again, fruit desired upon the brethren. And this is a fruit that's produced by the Spirit of God. We see that in Galatians 5.22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
That's what we're talking about there. It's just this experiential peace as the believer is relying upon the Lord. And this is what Paul wants for these believers. It's, it's almost like he's, he's saying, I want this fruit for you, but how do you get that fruit? It's when you walk by means of the Spirit. So it's almost like he's saying, I want you to walk by the Spirit. <laughs> I want you to depend on the Lord so you can experience what true peace looks like. And Philippians 4 describes the type of peace God provides. John, uh, in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus describes the type of peace that he provides. It's not as the world provides. The world provides peace by trying to, to clear up circumstances that are, that are contrary, negative, and hard. That's how the world tries to provide peace. Jesus provides peace in it. He, he's in the muck and the mire with you. He's in the mud with you. That's how he wants to provide peace. Not get you out of the mud, necessarily. Sometimes he does get you out of the mud. Sometimes he's, he's down in the mud with you, and he's getting you through circumstances with peace and rest. That brings us to the second thing that he wants for them in his benediction, and that is this phrase, love with faith. I think, again, the direction of that is toward the brethren, love toward the brethren. But notice where the love comes from, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what I love about this phrase that Paul uses. He uses this word with. And not to get too, anyways, I don't want to get too, too far off in the weeds on the language, but with here means in the midst of. It means accompanied with. It, it means tied together with. Coupled with is the title of this slide says. This is love that's accompanied by faith or mixed with faith. It's just, it's incredible because right there, right, right in this phrase is a sermon in and of itself. It's right there. Because what we see, not only that, is it's love coming from God the Father, but it's responded to by faith, and then it's distributed, it's designed to be distributed to others. So there's this interaction design here. In fact, when you look at the language, I said I wouldn't do it, but let me just do it. It's, it's love that belongs to faith. It's faith is possessive of the love. In other words, it's love that's going to spring out of faith, a response to the Lord. So again, it goes back to walking with the Lord. And so this love is sourced from the triune God. See, it's from God, the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And then it seems like this recognition of the love, which by the way, Paul prayed for us back in Ephesians 3, remember, that we would know and understand the love of God. Because he knows when you and your life is focused on how much God loves you, that you respond a certain way. That you're, you're not living the Christian life out of fear. You're not living your Christian life trying to impress the pastor. You're not living your Christian life to, to try to impress a social circles. You are living the Christian life based on the mercies of God for you individually. And you're responding to him. And then your Christian life becomes an audience of one. And guess what? The rest of us get to see that. But your response is to an audience of one, not what everyone else is going to think of you. And I think Christians spend too much energy worrying about what everyone else is going to think of them than take that same energy and actually focus on walking with the Lord, individually responding to him individually from the heart. And just take all the energy that you put into looking a certain way for everybody else, take the same effort and energy and put it into responding to the Lord. We would all be the much better for it each of us individually and corporately. And so a recognition of God's love here is designed to motivate a responsive believer, a, a believer that's responding to the love of God by faith. And then it's designed to what? Flow out of us to others. That's exactly, I think, how this is designed to be. And so Paul wants that for the Ephesian believers. 
He wants to see that manifested in their lives because then and only then will they be able to truly love others the way that God would love them. And then finally, the last thing in his benediction is grace. Notice I've got grace articulated. That's because it is articulated here. I love that. It's, it's a subtle thing. It doesn't make it into the translation because it doesn't read easy. So I kept it out, but it's the grace, literally the grace be with all those. And so he's, he's calling out a unique grace, you know, God's grace. And, and not that grace, I mean, grace always means the same thing, but it's unique when God extends it because we don't expect to get to heaven based on grace. We expect to get to heaven based on our works, and it just doesn't work that way. And he says, the grace to all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. And I believe this phrase just describes believers in general. He's talking about believers. He wants grace extended. And and again, it's the same word used earlier, with. Grace be with. It's the same word used other, accompanied with, mixed with. So everything that we do in life, may, may the grace of God just infuse everything that you're involved in. May it just mix into your life is what he's, he's praying for these believers. And then he goes on to say sincerity, which just means incorruptibility. Do, do we want believers to be sincere? Of course we do. Of course we do. But if they're not sincere, does that mean they don't get grace? That would be a wrong definition of grace. Grace is unmerited. We're just saying, hey, to sincere believers, we want believers to be sincere. How many people have heard someone say, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites? I mean, even the world values sincerity and, and hates and despises hypocrisy. We, we should too. We don't, we don't want to be hypocrites. We want to be sincere in our faith. Again, notice that he uses the word brethren. So it's not to say that, that, that true believers never have moments of insincerity. We all do. We're insecure in ways. We do want to look good. For others, certain people, we, we, str- we all fight that and struggle with that, but we want to be sincere in our faith. We want to care more about what God thinks about us than what other people think about us. And that needs to be just kind of a mindset. We can just be healthily, health, healthy, healthily, no. We can be distracted in a healthy way. That's the word I'm trying to go for. We can be distracted by the Lord instead of being distracted by trying to impress everybody else. So that tidies up the book of Ephesians. And if I let you go right now, we could beat, you know, everybody in town to the buffets. But we're going we're gonna to do a quick, and that's probably helpful to a lot of us, right, not to be able to get to those buffets. So speaking of myself. All right. So let's go through um, a 30,000-foot view of the book of Ephesians. So go back with me to Ephesians chapter 1. You just kind of flip through your Bibles. I don't want to cause any finger or wrist arthritis. So if you're going to try to write all this down, just email me this week and I'll email you the notes because we're going to move quick and it's designed to move quick. So we can kind of keep this all uh, in a big picture setting. So what is, uh, that's a picture of the ruins in Ephesus actually that I've got up on the screen there. Um, But what is, what is the context of the book? Well, Paul authored the letter. Uh, We know that. He wrote to the church at Ephesus. It was most likely designed to go there first and then work its way around in a a, uh, circular manner, just like this map shows. Um, This is how the the book of Revelation was circled, right? It was written over here on the island of Patmos. It was sent to Ephesus first, and then it worked its way up and clockwise around to the seven churches in, in Asia Minor and probably followed a very similar path. There was a road system there. It just made sense that it would follow that kind of path. Paul was under house arrest, roughly 62 AD. 
He's waiting a court date before Caesar at this time. He was writing believers that he knew well, right? The city of Ephesus. He had spent three years there during his third missionary journey. You kind of pick that up, not only from Acts 19, you also pick that up from Acts 20 when he calls the Ephesian elders to himself and says, I warned you of these things three years through night, uh, through day and night, through tears, he says. So he spent a lot of time with this church, developing and teaching them. In fact, Ephesians as a book was designed to be a summary of Paul's theology. But it's a theology in a very specific area. It's, it's regarding the mystery of the church and the dispensation of grace. This, without Ephesians, we wouldn't have a lot of the details that we have on this, the concept of the mystery. And what it ends up doing, like for us growing up in the church age, we're like, oh yeah, I mean, you've always known the church. I mean, some of you were probably, you know, um, presented, uh, you know, ded- baby dedicated in a church somewhere along the line, right? We've always grown up in church. But for a Jew coming out of the Old Testament, the church was confusing. Remember, because they're like, wait a minute, I see king, kingdom, and now you're saying there's this, this whole thing. And I see Gentiles being blessed as they're in the kingdom, but I don't see this whole thing of Jew, Gentile becoming one in the Messiah anywhere in the Old Testament. And that's Paul's point. It was a mystery. It, it was not revealed in the Old Testament. And so he was one of uh, really the key instruments, not the only one. We see that in, in chapter three, not the only instrument, but one of the key instruments revealing this mystery to the church. And so this mystery was simply this, that if you put your faith in the Jewish Messiah who died for your sins and rose again, God's grand plan of saving you and guaranteeing every blessing is to place you in union with him. And that's true of Jewish believers and it's true of Gentile believers. And he's forming one new body called the church. This is the most unique organization or organism that's ever existed on planet earth, what God is doing right now in the church. And so our quick three-word summary of the entire book, as you recall, was sit, walk, stand. Hopefully that's just kind of an easy moniker uh, to remember. And so let's just walk our way through the sit section. Remember chapters one through three, there's only one command in these chapters. In fact, the next command is not even found until 425. Okay, four, I mean, the, the, this whole front part of the book is full of what we'd call indicatives. These are statements of fact. This is what's true of you and what's true in general. It's teaching. It's, it's Paul saying, sit down. That's why we use, uh, that phrase was used. Sit down and listen to everything that I want to tell you because you're going to have to use this in the real world. You're going to have to use this when you stand up to go walk. You're going to have to use these truths. And so what did he teach here? Well, chapter one, verses two, he greets the, the Ephesian believers. He addresses them by their permanently heaven, uh, permanent heavenly address as saints. Remember, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You don't have to die and do miracles and wait for somebody to recognize your sainthood. You are a saint the moment you trust in Jesus Christ because God's the one who sets you apart in Christ. That's what the word saint means. But he also addressed them by their temporary earthly address, which was in Ephesus. And then we get to verses one Uh, our chapter one, verses three through 14. This is the first of eight long run-on sentences in the book. Now, why do we even bring that up? It's because we we love grammar. I actually hate grammar, by the way. Um, On the English side, I find Greek grammar more interesting because it kind of yields some interesting truths sometimes. But you know that this is the, the longest sentence conglomeration ever found in the Greek language, secular or biblical, right here. Verses three through 14. 
And I love pointing it out. The reason I love pointing it out is because what I see behind this pen or this, this dictation to his secretary, Paul is literally ex- so excited, he doesn't even take a breath. You've talked to people like that, that they're so pumped about something, and it's like, breathe, breathe. You know, it's like, Paul's just blitzing through it, and he just can't stop. He's going to get to the last very last breath and get that last word out. And that's kind of what we see here. And so he's excited. Why is he excited here? Because of this incredible statement that he makes in verse 3, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, and then he cannot stop until he's out of breath. (laughs) Takes us all the way to verse 14. What's he talk about there? Well, it explores our spiritual bank account in Christ. And here's the good news for you, believer. You may not realize this or not. That's your spiritual bank account. That's what it looks like. In fact, I made this statement last week. I'll I'll circle back. God cannot stuff one more dollar bill into your spiritual bank account because there's no room. He's already put it, he's already stuffed it full. That's the good news about what we see about being in Christ. See, God knew what he was doing by placing us in Christ. Now we get it all. We're not just, he's not just doling out blessings here and there as we need them. He's dumped the whole box on our head. We've we got it all. And, and he can't slam anything else in there. Again, by placing us in Christ in union with him, this is how he guarantees and secures every blessing that we have as a believer. This is how he did it. Moving to verse 15 through 23. It's the second of eight long run-on sentences. But this is Paul's first prayer that he records. There's gonna be another one in chapter three. This is his first prayer. What does he pray? Well, if you recall, when we were uh, going through this section, this is what you pray for someone who already possesses everything. You know that person in your life. You can't buy them anything for their birthday. You can't buy them anything for Christmas because they have everything. And like, what do you get for somebody that has everything? What do you pray for someone that has everything? This is what you pray for somebody that has everything. And what does he basically pray? Know the full extent of what you possess, possess, and then have the wisdom to utilize it more consistently in our daily life. And the question uh, here is, do you possess your possessions? I'm going to tell you this this morning. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you possess everything that you'll ever need in, by way of spiritual blessings. The question is, do you know that? Do you, do you possess it? Do you take advantage of it? That's really the million-dollar question. And Paul says, I want you to possess your possessions. I want you to enjoy everything that's yours in Jesus Christ. That's what he prays for. So he comes out of chapter one where he's looked at the spiritual riches of Christ. Chapter two, he does a quick flashback. Now he looks at their spiritual bankruptcy. Remember this section, verses one through three? Dead in trespasses and sins, right? By nature, children of wrath. By the way, verse one starts another long run-on sentence that takes us through verse seven. So he's just started the epistle with like three breaths, basically, <laughs> just getting it all out, right? He's, he's excited. He wants to, to get this down on paper. So he looks, he flashes back to our spiritual bankruptcy, and then he introduces some of the most powerful words in the English Bible, and it's this conjunction, but God. Remember that? You, life looked bad, spiritually bankrupt, on the streets, homeless, whatever. I mean, describe it in whatever vision. But then God came along. God interjects himself into the story because of, it's identified here in this passage, because of his love for you and because of his grace. Not because you cleaned yourself up, not because you promised to clean yourself up, nothing like that. In fact, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. God did this on the basis of his love and his grace. And what did he do? in relation to the, the, the doctrine and the theology of the book of Ephesians. Notice this, 
He made you alive. But he didn't just make you alive. What did he do? He made you alive together with Christ. He raised you up. But he didn't just raise you up. He raised you up together with Christ. And he didn't just seat you in the heavenly places. He seated you in the heavenly places with Christ. You see, your destiny as a believer is inextricably tied to Jesus Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news of the grand plan of God's salvation because you are now united to Jesus. What's true of Jesus is true of you. Where Jesus will be in eternity is where you will be in eternity. Jesus was raised from the dead. You will be raised from the dead. Why? Because you behaved in the Christian life? No. Because the moment you trusted in the finished work of Christ, God united you with Jesus Christ and your destiny is his destiny. See, that's the good news of what we're seeing. When God interjects himself, he does things right. He does things in full. He doesn't leave the rest up to you. He takes care of it in full because you're trusting him to do that. You trusted him to save you. And what do saviors do by definition? They save you. (laughs) That's by definition, that's what saviors do. And so he goes on to describe his character and his action in these verses. And why does he do that? He wants to put his grace riches on full display. Remember during that section, we talked about God's cosmic game of show and tell. He's showing off and rightfully so. He should show off every day for the rest of eternity based on what he accomplished 2,000 years ago. Rightfully so. You know what? We should be blown away every time he shows it off to us. Like, man, God, you're awesome. I can't believe I can't believe you pulled that off. Based on where we came out of verses one through three, this is a miracle of all miracles. Verses eight through 10, he goes on to display God's riches. He goes on to describe it. And he provides a great summary of how one is saved and how one is not saved. He goes back and forth in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And then also he describes what? Where do good works fit in? That's a, that's a million dollar question. Because does the Bible teach good works? Does the Bible teach certain types of behavior? It does. But you know what? Where do they fit in? After you're saved, after you're born into the family. And that's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tell us. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. But oh, by the way, when you're saved by faith, you're uh, created in Christ Jesus. You are God's workmanship. And what are you created in Christ Jesus for? Good works. That's where good works come, after you're part of the family. Not to get into the family, after you're part of the family. Verses 11 through 13, Paul now goes another flashback. Remember, he kind of, he was doing this back and forth in chapter two. Another flashback, but this time specifically focused on the Gentiles. And you think it was bad for Jew and Gentile, it was worse for Gentiles prior to Jesus Christ. They were, you know, as you, as you look at that, they were, what, without hope, without Christ. They were aliens. They were uh, of the covenants of promise. I mean, they were just out to lunch, not much of a chance. Now, why does he do this? Why does he describe this? Well, it begins to lead into his explanation of the mystery. This is why the mystery of the church is so incredible because of where Gentiles were prior to this revelation. What was God's grand yet unrevealed plan? Well, in verses 14 through 21, Paul begins to describe it. Christ did something miraculous. Not only did he die for your sins and rise again, he did something, he accomplished something behind the scenes here. He broke down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. 
That's identified as the Mosaic law. And he did it for a purpose. Why did he break that down? Because there was a legitimate partition between Jew and Gentile at this time through Old Testament revelation. But he did this to create one new man, the body of Christ, the church, which was comprised of both Jew, believing Jew and believing Gentile. Again, united to the Messiah, but also united to one another. And so we see this uh, diagram here, Jew and Gentile with the middle wall of partition being the Mosaic law. We see this third entity, the church, who's comprised of believing Jew and Gentile. And when Jesus Christ died, and when Gentiles and Jews believe that gospel message, they are now placed into the church. That is their identity as one who is in Christ. And that's unique. That was not predicted in the Old Testament. This leads into chapter three perfectly. Because in chapter three, in verse one, Paul wants to pray. In fact, if you remember that, it's like he starts to pray and then he gets distracted by something he says and then he goes on another rant through verse 13. And, and he wants to pray for what? He wants to pray for their understanding of the un, their union in Jesus Christ. So he had just talked about it in chapter th- two. Now he wants to start praying that they would understand that union, but then he gets distracted by his imprisonment. And so that introduces us to verses two through 13, uh, where he describes the mystery of Christ, the union of Jewish and Gentile believers in the Messiah, describes his ministry to the church and the uniqueness of that ministry. But again, he gets to verse two, he cranks out to verse 13. It's our fourth of eight long run-on sentences. Again, it's something he's excited about. He's getting it all out, right? In in one breath, so to speak. What is that mystery? Well, uh, number one, it caused his imprisonment. He wanted the, the Ephesian believers to know that this was the message that caused him to be in jail, which is where he's sitting when he write this. And the mystery is simply this, God's grand plan of salvation through union with his Messiah. When we think in terms of salvation, coming out of this passage, I want you to think of it in terms of this. God is not just granting salvation. You know, sometimes you'll even hear people say, hey, do you have your ticket to heaven? I, and I know what they're saying. I, I mean, I get it. You know, it's like, have you believed? But it's not like God is just saying, oh, here you go. There's salvation for you. There's salvation for you. There's salvation to you. As if you're going to show up to heaven one day and have to produce some ticket for him to see. No. Literally what God does is the moment you believe, he places you in Christ. Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, based on the finished work of Christ, is your salvation. It's not apart from him. This is why it's secure. This is why it's eternal. This is why you can never lose it, is because your salvation is inextricably tied to a person. And, I, and, and if you're like, man, he's already said that a couple times this morning. Good, you're getting it. Some people, we need to hear this seven, eight, a hundred times before we connect it. He's not just passing out salvation. Your salvation is connected to a person. We see that here. This is God's grand plan. This is how he did it. He placed you in Christ. You're united with the Messiah. And that's why your salvation is guaranteed. And you know, you see Paul's heart here. Because sometimes if you, any of you have ever been to college, you've had a professor that didn't care about you. Their, their whole job in class was to show up and get through their lecture, and then they try to get out of class as fast as possible. I still to this day have professors in my math, my, my math degree that I never even talked to. They would literally show up right on the board and then dart out, and I never even talked to them one time the entire semester. Paul's not that way. He wants to preach the message. He wants to teach the message. And then he says, and I want you to see what I'm saying. 
I want you to get this. Like, I want you to grasp this because this can be life-changing. And so Paul is very interested in that. It brings us to finally his prayer. Uh, again, the prayer that he wanted to start in verse one, he finally gets to in verse 14. Uh, this too is a, it's the fifth long run-on sentence in the book. You can just see he's, he's pumped in this section and he wants you to know what you have. He wants to pray that we would understand what we have. He wants us to know these things. We summarize this prayer into two requests that the believers would be internally strengthened by the Spirit of God. He comes back to that, remember in chapter six, be in strengthened in the Lord, but he prays that the Spirit of God would internally strengthen believers. And then he prays that the believers would understand and comprehend the love of God. Man, that is a great prayer for anybody that you know that's a believer, that they would understand and comprehend the love of God, that God himself would strengthen them internally. If you don't know what to pray for somebody, pray that. I have people oftentimes, and I appreciate it, say, yeah, I prayed for you this week. And if you ever run out of things to pray for me, pray that for me, please. I would welcome that because that's what I wanted. I want to know the love of God in more detail because I know that when I understand it, even a smidgen more, that my response is going to be in such a way that honors him. And that's what I'm looking for in life, right? To get our eyes off of all these other distractions and just get locked in on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what a great prayer request for Paul. So we move out of the sit section and now we're in the walk section and I'm almost in the run section because we got to get through this. So um, chapters four through six, nine, 39 commands in the walk section, 39 commands. And he's going to use with with the word walk, it's used six times in this section. He's gonna use, I think, five different qualifiers on what the walk should look like. So he describes it from all these different angles. Hopefully, I think that, that one would click because now we've got this spiritual bank account. How does that play out in our life? What would it, what would it look like if you had unlimited riches in a bank account for you? What would your life look like from there? Well, you'd, you know, you'd probably do different things than you're doing today right? You, you would utilize those resources. That's what Paul wants believers to do. And so as we move into chapter four, we see that first qualifier. It's, it's, a, it's to walk worthy. Here's our sixth run-on sentence. This takes us through verse six. But to walk worthy, to walk in balance with something. What's that in balance with? Our calling. And our calling, as we see in this section, provided seven aspects of unity. Remember that in chapter four? One body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That provided the unity there. And then he jumps from unity and he goes to diversity. How, does, how is unity outworked in a practical way? Well, I'll tell you how it's worked out in a secular society. Get everybody that thinks alike, believes alike, looks alike, smells alike, eats alike, all in the same room, and then we can have unity. That's not how God put together the church. In fact, he put together diverse individuals. And he says, even with diversity, he can produce unity by means of the spirit through these spiritual gifts. And this is what we see in the next section. Each believer is gifted spiritually with gifts. Every believer in this room has a spiritual gifting that God wants to utilize in the local church. And then God has given the church gifted men to train and equip believers so that they can utilize their gifting in the works of ministry that God has called them to. This is how the church is designed to grow. Not with fog machines, not with a light show, not with all these other things that our church growth gurus write books about. Teaching the word of God, getting equipped, exercising your spiritual gift. That is 
what this section talks about. Paul used the second qualifier for the word walk in verses 17 through 24. He said, don't walk this way, right? Walk worthy, but don't walk like the Gentiles walk. And oh, by the way, I skipped 11 through 16 is the seventh of the eight long run-on sentences um, in Ephesians. But don't walk like the Gentiles walk. How does that look? Well, he goes on to describe it in verses 25 through 32. Since we put off the old man, we put on the new man. Paul now describes behavior, which is in line with our new standing in Christ. These are practical, visible, external, observable actions that will show you whether or not you're walking worthy or walking by means of the sin nature. And so this is what, how we finish chapter four. It brings us into chapter five. The third qualifier for the word walk is to walk in love. The example for that is Jesus Christ. He gives Jesus as the example, and then he goes on to describe what walking in love does not look like. That's all there encompassed in verses one through seven. Verses eight through 14, we see the fourth qualifier for the word walk. It's walk as children of the light. Don't walk as children of darkness, right? Walk as children of the light. And what is that? Why? Why should we walk as children of light? Well, the argument there is because you are light in the Lord. Again, if you're unified to the light of the world, you are light. You're connected to the light. So we should walk and live that way. Verses 15 through 18 gives us our fifth qualifier, the word walk. And it's to walk circumspectly. It's to walk carefully. It's to pay attention to how you walk, not just slumbering through life, just walking through life asleep at the wheel, right? To, to be awake and to walk circumspectly. That drives us into really a section of its own. And that's where the believer is commanded to be filled by the Spirit. It's not commanded to be indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit of God indwells us the moment we believe. We learned that in chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. This is being filled by the Spirit. Just like alcohol fills you and impacts your actions and activities and your thoughts and your words, now let the Spirit of God do the same thing as you rely upon Him. And when you do that, there are manifestations. This is what you should see in your life. Speaking, singing, and making melody in your hearts, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. Those are manifestations of the Spirit filling. And guess what? Now we go to these practical relationships. The Spirit of God wants to impact and influence your marriage. He wants wives to submit to their own husbands. He wants husbands to love their own wives. And as, and as we walk by means of the Spirit, as we're filled by the Spirit, this is what our marriages will look like more consistently. We see in chapter 6, the Holy Spirit desires to influence parent-child relationships. Again, obedience of the children to their parents, and then parents training their children in the Lord. And then we see in verses five through nine, the Holy Spirit also desires to impact employer-employee relationships. Again, obedience of the employee, and then valuing or right treatment of the employer of their employees. All spirit-filled, manifested activity. And so that takes us through the walk section, which leaves us with the stand section, which we've been um, talking about the first or the last few weeks. And, and again, the, the word stand, again, why is this a, a part of our summary? Well, uh, the word stand or a form of it is used four times in verses 11 through 14. You can kind of see it as you're tracking through your Bible, but you can see stand, stand, withstand, stand, right? It's, it's all there in verses 11 through 14. And so the idea in this com- uh, communicated in this section is we've got this enemy that's after us, who constantly come after, comes after us, but we don't have to fight or advance necessarily. 
We are to stand in victory. We are united with the victor. We're on high ground. We've got leverage. We're not trying to advance. We're just standing in victory. And yet, even though we're standing in victory, the enemy doesn't stop attacking. And thus, we are also designed to withstand or to stand against these onslaughts. But we can't do it in our own strength, right? That's what we've been looking at the last few weeks. And so that's why in verses 10 through 17, believers are, to, are told to be in-strengthened, right? Remember, Paul coined that word. It doesn't exist in other Greek documents. He coined that word, be in-strengthened by the Lord. How? Taking up and putting on the whole armor of God. What's the purpose for doing that? That we might be able to stand in victory with Jesus Christ and withstand against the onslaughts of the enemy. By the way, uh, Verses 14 through 20 form our final long run-on sentence. So again, right when we get into the whole armor of God, he, he lets it rip again, right? He gets it all out. Verses 18 through 20, we looked at this last week. Believers ought to pray and stay alert in the use of the whole armor of God. And then Paul asks for some specific prayer requests for himself. And then this morning, we covered uh, that final section, which is his final greetings, concluding comments, benediction. So Ephesians 30,000 foot view um, there in about 20 minutes. You know, I hope, I, I, really believe, I really mean this. I hope the study, for those that were here for the entire study, I hope the study of the book of Ephesians has been an absolute blessing to you. It has been a blessing to me to be able to study this, to be able to think through how to communicate it to you. And so I just, I just hope it's been doubly, <laughs> a double blessing for you as we've studied through. And I hope that Uh, more importantly, that you have learned even better how to possess your possessions as a result of this study. And so that's my prayer. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, that is my prayer for each one of us is that believers in this room would be able to more adequately and consistently reach out to you in moments of need in our lives and possess the possessions that we possess in Jesus Christ. And that we would value those, that we would value understanding them more deeply and utilizing them more consistently. That's our prayer, Lord. That's what we want to see in each and every life represented here today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.